Welcome to the Audiation in the Wild podcast with your hosts, Bo Talifer and Eric Rasmussen. Season 2, Episode 18, Jazz Trumpeter John Swana. Yeah, so, so John, I found your stuff because Eric, Eric showed me your, uh, was it Bandcamp? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so he's like, you got to check some of this stuff out. And um, I think part of the reason was um, Eric and I had a conversation about, you know, the importance of learning licks or the importance of learning little etudes so you can learn how to hear playing over changes better. And I was making this claim that like just knowing how to play like over a two chord, over a one chord, that's not enough. You need to learn stuff that goes through the chord changes to get it inside your ear um, to really start flying over tunes. And I was, you know, I was making this argument that learning licks is like great and and even further than that learning whole etudes even and you know we know so many great jazz musicians have done that and then at some point i think it was right near that conversation eric was like well check this stuff out and and it was your giant steps um exercises and um yeah i mean obviously from what i hear you're a great musician i've listened to some of your recordings and stuff but i thought it'd be cool for us to have a conversation about like how you approach now or how you have approached um learning to play over changes and learning to play over tunes uh um just from a you know just from a jazz musician's perspective yeah i can i can hear myself better with one of these out but um i mean for me starting on trumpet i always felt like i had to play specific ideas because if you don't play specific ideas you sound kind of lame on trumpet because if you don't hear it, you're going to be kind of sounding. You can't just play a note. You got to hear it. You know what I mean? Because of the partials of the trumpet. So when when I started uh, learning jazz, I learned it from a high school buddy who was playing, who was ahead of me, who was a sax player, who uh, a guy named Glenn Guidone, and he he was the first time I saw the guys play without music. I was amazed. I was like, wow, you can do that. And so. Uh, I started, we would get together and play. And, and I remember he used to make fun of me because I would play real basic stuff because he could kind of move around in it uh, more, for one, because he was more advanced, but two, because I think the nature of the saxophone, uh, you can move around. So, I, I, you know, I just learned at the beginning very specific stuff because especially once you get above um, concert F above the staff, you definitely have to hear the notes or you're going to be on the wrong partial. So I was always in that kind of camp of thinking in that way. So I definitely was into licks because I liked, you know, uh, the jazz guys, Miles Davis, Freddie Hubbard, uh, Kenny Dorm. I saw the argument, actually, Eric, with Jim Holton about licks and not licks. He was saying you don't need to learn licks. And I was saying, <clears throat> yeah, you can not learn licks. You can uh, play if you're playing all the time. And, you, and uh, I think if you're maybe at a super advanced level of ability you can just kind of uh just from playing if you're like a prodigy playing since you were three uh, uh you can probably get away with not doing that as much because you're you're hearing so much and everything's so natural to you but um and jim was saying you don't have to learn licks but you know piano you can also get away with outlining the chord in your solo so uh, what happens to me is if you're going to go that route, then you're not going to have any strong melodic phrases that have good voice leading because you haven't worked on that. 
to do that. So we used to have that argument. And anyway, that's, I came up like that. So, uh, uh, and I, once I got my EV, the electronic thing I play, mm-hmm. I, uh, you let me borrow that for a weekend, man. It was a blast. I didn't get very far. <laughs> oh, is that the same? There was there was some guy. It was an early model. Yeah, yeah. Some guy you were living with. Maybe you were living with or friends with that took it apart. I was like, I was like scared. He took it apart in front of me. I was like, oh my! But he knew what he was doing. Okay. I forget who it was, but um. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> but when I got that, I could all of a sudden I I could play without one. I could think of an idea and finger it, and it would come out. Two, I could play without getting tired. So that helped me a lot to play the EV. And it was early computer, so I would make um, sequences. I had a, a Commodore Amiga. Remember the Commodores? Mm-hmm. And uh, I would program tunes in 12 keys with baseline and hi-hat click and just play through things in 12 keys. Not worrying about trying to play licks, just play through it. And that helped a lot, too. But all the while, I'm grabbing my favorite stuff from my favorite players. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and I remember that's something that <clears throat> we had Hal Galper on the podcast, and that that's kind of how he approaches learning licks. You know, just just take licks you like from your favorite players and just put them through the ringer, like play them in different keys, or or just take the melodic shape from the lick. And and I, I think we have a similar issue. Like I'm a guitarist, and you know I play piano as well, and the piano is so logically laid out that you you can kind of it's so easy to see the where the chord tones are laid out and how the voice leading would would follow but not necessarily so and i see a lot of people that don't play licks their ideas don't kind of resolve um melodically or voice lead into the chords in a way that makes sense and that's something that even if you're not going to play the actual lick from playing good licks you learn how those resolutions happen and you can take those little ideas and and so for me, licks is, are, definitely aren't necessarily just inserting them into the solo. But once they're so natural, you start to embellish them and, and leave things out and add ideas to them. And I find it, um, from my experience from teaching, especially high school jazz guitar players, starting with licks makes them better players in a shorter amount of time for almost all of them. And even if they are natural, like it seems like having some vocabulary in there is like invaluable. Um, and, and it can just be things that you like. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, pages of forced licks or anything like that. Just little ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think of it also like um, my one trumpet teacher said, um, he goes, you're like a stew. You like, like we're talking trumpet. You like the way this guy attacks. You like this guy's sound. You like this guy's range. You like the way this guy plays a ballad. You like this. You put it in your stew and you stir it up. So if you're at, at some point, it's good to learn a whole soul because it's a challenge. It's like an etude. But at some point, you just pick your favorite stuff, and you turn you get you bring it into your your camp, and then you can you know embellish it and and go. Ah, I kind of like doing it this way. I mean, I think people are afraid. I don't know what happens. Some well, sometimes you hear people that maybe lack imagination in their improvisation, so sure. they take licks and then they just kind of regurgitate that. And but that's not the fault of the lick. That's the fault of the person getting the lick. And not being create or just just trusting that they can make up something because of that, or you know they can embellish that in a way that's creative. I completely agree, and I, I've even found too that if I if I first teach licks to a student, like you know a lick that goes over the five chord or or, or whatever, 
if you try to teach them the theory about it later on, once they can already hear the lick and know it, the theory kind of just falls into place and it makes sense. But if you try to get too theoretical at first when they don't have any real musical ideas that are linked to that theory, they just the theory is almost just not useful at all for them, especially with jazz because it can get so theory heavy fast if you're you know depending on what tunes you're playing over right um, and often it's just better to you know do the theory once once they have a bit of vocabulary under their fingers and 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 probably even better able to sing it right and i'm a big fan of doing that being able to sing the absolutely <clears throat> the licks that you play yeah because sometimes that's I'll, what i'm doing right now with your uh with your giant step stuff I, you, i'm learning to sing those exercises oh nice <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've, and maybe we'll get into how you would practice, you know, playing over brand new tunes and new changes as well. Um, Cause what I did is I took your etudes and I, I recorded like one bar increments of them. And I just, I, I sing the one bar multiple times. Right. And I, and I've gone through the whole etude like that. And then now I'm doing two bars at a time. And then kind of once I'm at two bars at a time, it feels like I can just start singing over the whole thing right but kind of for me it's helpful to break it down into yeah because those are there's pieces. also symmetric there's symmetrical ones so you kind of once you get it mm -hmm. with maybe i'm not all of them but maybe some of them once you get a couple bars you can hear it then you can kind of force it through the rest of the etude hopefully sure. <laughs> yeah 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 for sure yeah the, that first one is really cool there's a lot of there's a lot of like minor seventh arpeggios that are not necessarily in the same part of the in, of the key there you know sometimes it's it's over the two chord sometimes it's over the the one chord like implying a you know a sharp 11 or something like that from what i remember but it's kind of cool it changes the way you hear it right right um but how would how would you approach playing over a new set of changes that you you can't hear already you have no licks to um like say say for example giant steps like you're trying to teach someone giant steps who can't hear those changes yet um, what would you have them start doing or what would you do yourself? Um, I try to find commonality and and uh, and things that I can relate to past experience. Like, like, you know, when it goes to the B flat seven to the E flat major, I, from experience, I know that's five to one. So I can, that, that I got that covered. You know, I mean, and I know Giant says, but let's say I didn't. So the first chord is a B major. I would, well, different ways. It's one, I'd outline the chords in, in whatever way I want to outline them. I don't have to outline them in a, in a boring way. <clears throat> but maybe I always kind of like starting on the third of a major chord or starting on the major seven and outlining that way up. Like major seven, root, third, fifth. Or from the third, third, fifth, major seven, nine, right? And maybe when I did that, I'd see on giant steps, I could go, I could do the third, uh, fifth, like I have my Eevee. <laughs> so I could go, um, I'm going to get it all tangled. I'm trying to be quiet so I don't mess up my recording. So all of a sudden I'm at the root of the next chord, right? So maybe I'd work out slowly like... or whatever like i go through each chord at maybe at a time first so i can get connected with what's going on and find the relationships that make sense to me sometimes sometimes a chord is different than i'm used to seeing and, and then i'll translate it. I, i'll go oh i can look at it like this i can look at it like um a d minor seven or something whatever i don't know if that makes any sense mm -hmm. For over sure. top yeah, of I mean... a different root or something maybe right right 
So I'm, I'm curious how, how, how micro will you get with this in your practice? So like with, with giant steps, if you're going from, uh, you know, the B major seven into a D seven chord as like your first change and say that's new for you. Uh, how much time will you spend just connecting the one chord to another before you start adding more? I guess it's different depending on how familiar you are with it. You're not going to need to spend as much time going from the D7 to the, the G major 7. I, yeah, I guess but, it depends on how how much I'm struggling with the connection. Like, Giant yeah. Steps to me now is like, compared to some of the tunes that people write that I have to deal with, it's like, it's not even hard anymore. Because <laughs> uh, other people write tunes and I'm like, you know, if I'm doing, uh, I'm playing with them, I'm like, how are you thinking of that? Or I'll have to kind of translate it. So, yeah, I, let's say I'll, if I play through tune, I'll play through it slowly. And then I'll, let's say I have to do rehearsal and I have no time. And then after the rehearsal, I can go home. I'll find the spots that I struggled with <clears throat> to make a, give continuity. And then I'll, I'll focus on those points and, and try to, uh, just pick a section and go. Okay, let me just get this, this this stuff straight as best I can, and and I'll do it as until I can feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. As if I can, you know. There's one tune I, I did. I played with this um. This band called the Chronicles. They're like young guys. They're all really good. And uh, the alto player wrote this tune with the solo section. It was in a different time, and the chords kind of went by fast. And I, I practiced it, but I was like. This part's and I, and I heard him play it and he sounded good. I said, "You take the solo on this part. Give me." The, they were splitting the solo up, and and so I took the easier part of the tune because it's like he wrote the tune, he knows it. I can mm-hmm. sound okay on it, but I'd rather have more time to practice it, to sit down yeah, and, sure. and dissect. So in that case, I took the recording of the rehearsal, and and started playing to it, and then slowed things down so I could think about things, and then also try to get an overview. That was not so mic, uh, micro managing, more like macro. Get the macro, hear the macro, mm-hmm. along with thinking of the micro. If that makes sense. Yeah, feeling the phrase as opposed to playing over changes. Yeah, yeah, and hearing the key. There's sometimes you'll have a bunch of changes, yeah. but you can kind of think key center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Eric, Eric, and I were talking about this before <clears throat> with with these uh, with these giant steps licks and. Excuse me. Um, with these giant steps licks and uh, little etudes that you've written, but <clears throat> I noticed since I've been doing, um, since I've been working with some of those, um, yeah, the the changes sound different. Like you know, as soon as uh, it, it used to sound, I don't know what it sounded like to me before, but it, it actually sounds like three distinct key centers now. Yeah. When I when I play it, and it, um, you know, and you go, you start in B major, and you're you're right off the bat you're already heading towards g exactly if you're playing it in that key and i and as soon as i get to that d7 chord now it sounds like i'm in g now but it didn't sound like that before Uh, i don't know what it sounded like it just sounded like you know a soup of chord changes um but But eric and i were uh curious is that how you hear giant steps that's exactly it what you just said to me it's like key centers b major g major e flat major the five chord is just going there i'm already in that key am i i mean i can play on the five chord but I'm already in G major. Yeah. So then I'm already in yeah. E flat major. And then the two five, I'm already in G major again. I may, I mean, I might yeah. play the two five, you know, like a bebop way or, you know, whatever, but it's, I'm thinking G major. So, yeah. I find it interesting. Cause what I, what I was doing as well on top of your licks, I was just playing, uh, I kept all the one chords where they were supposed to be. 
and I just played through the whole tune like that. So I erased everything except the one chords, and I just I would just stay in stay in B for you know the full bar instead of only half a bar, and then and I found that that was useful um, too, just just for feeling where the key center are, are changing. Well, yeah, one of the um, early exercises I did on Giant Steps was. Um... And so it kind of comes with teaching too. Sometimes I'm I'm teaching and, and uh, I'll usually just teach what I'm working on. So at one point I was like, how can I make giant steps simple? And I was like, I was into pentatonics, right? So I'm like major pentatonic. I, I know uh, people think differently with pentatonics. I just always think major, but um, you can think minor too, <clears throat> which makes sense too because you, what I'm saying, uh, what I'm uh, going to say is like. Major pentatonic from the fifth of the major chord, or from the root of the the uh, dominant seven. So you can play giant steps with just three pentatonics. So on the B major, you play F sharp major pentatonic. Then you go to D major pentatonic on the D seven. Stay on D major pentatonic. Go to B flat major pentatonic. Stay there for the E flat. On the two five, just do D major pentatonic all the way to G. Do B flat major all the way to E flat. Do F sharp all the way to B. And so that mm. that was an exercise I used to do. I even wrote a head on it. I mean, on one of my records is literally that pentatonic exercise, just playing pentatonics like every other note, like kind of going. Um... Or something to that effect. But it's like doing every other note in a pentatonic. So if I think F sharp pentatonic, very cool so it was like you know that i made myself do giant steps like that until i was like ready to you know kill someone and then when i stopped <laughs> it, it felt great then it was a, like a release because then i had the pentatonics kind of but then i could just play normal stuff too yeah yeah um where where does uh like you know, we would use the word audiation, just being able to pre-hear something in your head before you play it. And you were kind of alluding to the same idea. But, you know, where does singing come in to play? Because uh, I noticed the stuff that's really in my fingers for me, I can walk down the street and sing it and visualize how to play it on my instrument as well. And that's often a good litmus test for how well I know something. Can I sing when I'm away my away from the instrument? Uh, and I, I'm curious where that falls in with you. Does it does that kind of automatically arise, or do you do you use the singing as a vehicle to try to yeah, yeah. expedite I, that as well? Absolutely. So when I was in school with with Eric, I remember living with my sister at the time, and um, you know, I'd take a shower before school, and I'd be like singing, and I was thinking, God, if I could play what I'm singing, I'll be great. You know, I'd be great. You know, so. And I grew up like in my family, even, even though we all stopped singing for some reason, we. we we, when we were kids, we all sang because my mother sang. So it was always trying to get that connection with singing. And I remember seeing Dizzy Gillespie on The Muppet Show. And um, <laughs> he, he was scatting. And, and I noticed when he was scatting, he was moving his fingers, moving his trumpet fingers to the scat. And I thought yeah. that was so cool. Like, wow, he can he's connected to his instrument. And now, which you might experience too, is like, when I sing, if I'm having a problem hearing it, if I put down my fingers, like for the instrument, I hear it better because <clears throat> it's so programmed in my brain. Yeah. To, to... Yeah. So, um, but yeah, singing, even with students, if, uh, if they're like, sometimes I'll show them something that they can't play it and I'll say, sing it. 
and sometimes they can't sing it, so they're not hearing it. So we have to go back step one. But sometimes mm -hmm. they're hearing it, but they're getting in the way of themselves in their head thinking. And once they sing it, it kind of breaks the dam. And then when they go back to their instrument, they can figure mm -hmm. it out. Singing eliminates kind of the theory, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think I learned how to do this in high school of necessity because I'd be bored in, you know, English class or whatever. And I would just, I would use my left arm like it was a fretboard and I would just kind of hum everything I was playing. And, you know, you, you do that for five years and it kind of gets built into your head. And I try to do that when I'm teaching now, you know, after I, I get my students to sing everything we play within reason. And sometimes I'll ask them, you know, cover your hand on your fretboard so the strings don't make sound. I want you to finger it while you sing it. And it, it seems like doing that with kids after a year or two, it, it, everything starts to get, you know, linked up in the mind very strongly where when they sing it, they can see how to finger it. And, you know, when they finger it, they can they, they kind of know what it's going to sound like. And uh, I mean, I guess this is the nice thing about the trumpet is you're going to use similar fingerings for similar notes because on the guitar you could use different fingerings for the same note. And so like, I know for me, like it's, it's a, I can feel the fingering. I can see the fretboard in my mind and I can hear what it's going to sound like. They're all kind of linked with each other. And I think you have to learn. Um, yeah. You kind of have to learn all of those together and, and separately kind of. It, yeah. I, I call it a musical off. kind of a synesthesia, right? Yeah. Where you get the, the music and the, and the tactile audiation, you've got the internal stuff and you've got the, you know, what you're, what your body needs to do to produce, produce all that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah this, you know, you feel if I, I use my, to sing in tune, I use my fingers all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I also, yeah. I, I had an old trumpet when I was going to Temple two that I cut apart and just had the valves. This was before, I had, okay. before I had the E because I'd be tired. I remember that thing. What's that? I remember that thing. I gave it away to a, a girlfriend and she moved away and took it, you know, she took it with her, so I had <laughs> But um, she found it useful. That's that's cool. Yeah, no, I before the EV, that's what I would do because I'd be tired. My lips would be tired, and I'd still want, I had energy to play music, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can share with us, uh, share with the listeners a little bit. What What is this thing that we keep talking about? And you've played it for us on the podcast already. What, t tell us more about this instrument. It's kind of plugged in weird here. It's a... It's like kind of an electric, this is it's the one I use at home because it's unpredictable. It'll turn off or change patches for some reason. Um, but uh, it's kind of made for a trumpet player. So it has like octaves here. The rollers are here with my thumb. And it has certain notes on the trumpet of the same figuring, like E's and A's, F's and B flats. So you get a half an octave with that finger, and then you got to use your finger to get the next half. Yeah. And then you turn the bottom to go up an octave, and you do the same thing over again. Yeah, and it's the same the finger. Finger on or finger off. It's low fingerings of trumpet. So, so and you and you started using this as a way to give your your chops a, a break. Well, essentially, once I heard about it, I was like. Well, I was always jealous of sax players too, because I was like, they could always play all this stuff. And I was like, once I heard that it was, a, I heard about the instrument, I was like, I'm getting that instrument. I think I'm sure I was the first guy in Philly to get it. I had to be, or at least the first couple guys to get it. Yeah. So for me, and you know, then it opened up my world in different ways that I didn't predict, like listening to electronic music, getting, you know, it, checking out guitar players more because, um, you know, 
for me, my amp choices are influenced by guitar players, or my pedal choices are always guitar players. You know, I ask, I used to ask them questions like, "What does this do?" You know. Yeah. Interesting. So, what what are you running that? What are you running that through in terms of an amp then? Right now, I just when have you're a, playing. The amp I have there is is a is a I'm going through a Dave Smith Evolver. It's called. It's like a a monophonic synth, and um. Mm-hmm. I'm going through actually a homemade amp that my guy share a house with. He there was a period where he was building amps, so yeah. I didn't have it set up. And then right before we got on, I was like, "Well, maybe I should just have it to grab to play." And usually I use wireless, but I didn't have the time to set it up, so I kind of plugged myself in. So I have that mm-hmm. amp, but the amp I play on gigs is is a Quilter. You know the Quilter amps? I'm not super familiar with. They're them, like sure. um, they're kind of. Seems like the guitar players in Philly, like the some of the guys use the quilter. It's like a solid state. Yep. And um, you, you can get real loud, but it's it's got a good sound. Yeah, solid state amps are generally nice. They'll they'll keep a similar tone quality no matter the volume. If a tube amp, you kind of need to drive it pretty hard to get the sweet sound out of it, and that can be really inappropriate for small gigs. And also, just to carry uh, or, or it can be it's, a, it's yeah. heavy. So I mean, this I can. Park, I could be four blocks away and carry it and hang on a loud gig and and play. So, you know, and I can, but also I'm, I'm using my iPad for the podcast, but I mean, I play through my iPad. It's my lazy way to practice. I just have a cup of coffee, turn on the iPad and just will, you know, work on something, work on tunes I have to work on for an upcoming gig. Mm-hmm. So, and so you mentioned it, it was changing what you were listening to, and I'm imagining it even changed the way you listen to yourself, just because, you know, if you if you grow up only playing trumpet, it has a certain timbre to it, and you start playing this different instrument. Yeah. Um, I know it's nice being a guitar player, because you have, you know, you can play classical guitar, you can play an acoustic guitar, you can, once you're in electric guitar, the sound the sounds never end, there's an, an insane amount of stuff to choose from. Yeah, guitar is like, uh, yeah, in, in my uh, next life, it's going to be guitar. <laughs> or maybe not music at all. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But um, hey, Todd, you you mentioned your mom, and being an early childhood guy, I'm curious what your experiences or what was she doing, but when you're uh, in her belly, and then the first few years of life, she sang, and your siblings sang. You said, can you just give me a quick, like, what was your experience with? Was there jazz in the household? What what was going on? So uh, she was she sang. She took a break. She was she met my dad in New York. My dad was going to Columbia. She had gone to study with the teacher at Juilliard. She was going to go to Juilliard, and then he I think he got he left, and so she studied with him in New York, and she was uh, freelancing around New York City because she had already got her undergrad. <clears throat> so when he got a job with GE, she stopped music for a while, but she always had the piano at home was singing teaching lessons, and uh, there was always music in the house. So my father would like Beethoven and, uh, you know, more conservative stuff. And my, they, they like what we have for records. Because my father just passed away, so we were playing some of the records. Um, uh, yeah. We had Al Hurt records. Mm-hmm. Um, Roberta Flack, he liked Roberta Flack, the first record, first take with Ron Carter. And, and then um, I remember them putting us to sleep with... Uh, Aaron Copeland, Rodeo, mm-hmm. and um, uh, Billy the Kid. I think one 
Leonard Bernstein version from uh, yeah. So we were always growing up in music. Then my mom was a choir director, mm. so we were always singing. We have tapes of us singing when we were real young, like the you know yeah. whatever. Um, and then you know when I first learned trumpet, my mom because she I guess she got an education degree. She picked up the trumpet. She goes and showed me how to play it. She played clarinet and trumpet, and my grandfather, who was already passed away, was like played all the instruments. So it was in. And the blood. So music was always playing, you know. Yeah, yeah, cool. I, I find that every musician that's of some decent level has some early childhood story that, you know, you just can't. There's, there's never anybody I talk to that says, ah, oh, we didn't have anything right. going on. Yeah, so that, yeah, cool. but I know when my sister took lessons, I saw how much she hated it on piano. I never wanted to play piano. Like now, I regret it. But I met, when I saw how much she hated it, I was like, I don't even want to get near that instrument now. But you can still lay out, you know, you still play yeah. uh, changes. Oh, yeah. I, I, told, I, I, you know, I accompany students and stuff. But I mean, that was after years of like slouching and not wanting to, you know, just hating the piano. Just like for some reason, it just left a bad thing in my head. No, I, yeah, I can sure. just still play yeah mediocre yeah yeah i've definitely made uh i've made a living off of rescuing piano students about half my students are piano students and i'm mainly a guitar player but it's just usually because they, they they don't like the piano instruction and i try to i just i just teach them songs they want to learn for the first few years i don't really go too hardcore with the classical method or anything and they you know you can teach them most of what they need to know just just like that and then they usually stick with it too. That seems like a better way to do it. I'm teaching like a beginner trumpet student who's who's in the theater department at the college, so she's learning. She wants to play trumpet. I'm just showing her songs. So what songs yeah. do you know? You know. So we went. You know, we did yeah. Pink Panther. We did Take Me Out to the Ball Game. We did Girl from Ipanema. You know. I mean, I've talked about this a lot on the podcast, but two reasons I really like to do this is one, if you teach them songs they like, they probably have listened to them a lot. So they're already in their ear. So just pulling it off on the instrument is often just easier to do because if you have to, if you have to get the song in their ear, you're going to have to, you play it with them, but you need them to listen to the song a lot, right. essentially. And sometimes they just won't do that if it's a song they're not connecting to. And then the other thing, the other reason I'm more open to just starting the first few years of lessons like this is a lot of kids are just playing piano as a hobby for fun, right? They're not trying to be a professional musician when they're like eight or nine and, and pushing them into a you know, super fast tracked curriculum. It's, it's, it's not necessarily what they're even signing up for. They just want to play some tunes and have some fun. And um, especially at like a once a week lesson for, you know, an eight year old or something like that. Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. But often what happens is they, they, they do so well with that, you know, after a while, they'll stop requesting songs, and I'll be like, "Well, you should check this song out. This is kind of cool. It's kind of like this other one that we learned, but it's got a little something else." And then, you know, they start getting into jazz or, or whatever from from that. And it's, yeah, it's kind of my experience with piano. I, I, I just everything I learned on the guitar, we had a piano in the house, and I knew the names of the notes, and I just figured out how to play it on the piano. And you, you know, you do that for long enough at a young enough age, and you get pretty good at it. Yeah. Uh, kind of fun to do yeah, absolutely <laughs> I, I call it i call it microwave piano i used to play piano while my pizza pockets were in the microwave <laughs> <laughs> so you know two minutes here and there every day it starts adding up and you get you get better at it and it, I, I think i got some kind of sick satisfaction of being able to play the piano without having had lessons my brother had lessons but i could kind of 
you know, play some things, even though I wasn't uh, taking piano lessons. And I thought that was really fun. Yeah, yeah. That was cool. That is yeah. cool. But I love the idea of, you know, parents just having pianos in the house, um, whether or not you're going to have lessons on them. Because you never know. Like for me, my brother moved out. He's he's older than me. But literally us just having a piano in the house made me into a decent piano player because I was, you know, I was kind of experimenting with it. And I've heard parents like, you know, threaten to get rid of a piano. Like, oh, if you're not going to play it, we're getting rid of it. But to me, that just sounds like, you know, you should have instruments in the house for kids to play around with and god knows why some kids like trumpets more than pianos or drums more than you know guitars but yeah i like the idea of just having it there for, well, for kids you got to... you got to imagine probably the turn of the century like 19th century to 20th century pianos were in everybody's house because you had all that mm -hmm. kind of like you know song music from back in that era everybody could kind of read mm -hmm. or not everybody but a lot more people seem to be able to read music and just play at home for entertainment because there wasn't all this other stuff we have now and singing too, I think. Yeah. Um, I mean, you obviously grew up in a family where singing was uh, big. It wasn't in my family, but my mom put me in a lot of programs when I was younger, and we sang a lot at school. Actually, I don't know why. It was just it was just lucky, I guess. But you know, we were always singing, and I think uh, I meet a lot of kids nowadays that that um, until they meet me, they haven't sung very much. Right. Um, which which seems like uh, I know for Eric, this is huge, and it's huge for me. But yeah, not learning how to sing even to a basic degree. Um, it can be it can be crippling for a musician. But also, I always think if you're playing a wind instrument, your whole goal is to try to sound like you're singing through the instrument. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll do yeah. this with students where we'll improvise and I'll say, you know, you can't play something unless you can sing it at the same time. It's easy on guitar because you can literally sing while you're playing. But often... You know, often when people are very scale heavy in their mind and they and they don't have licks that they know, the lines that they play, they don't sound lyrical. It doesn't sound like something someone would actually sing. They not, don't not that everything has to say. Yeah, and they and they don't breathe. Like I even noticed this when I when I play guitar licks, my breathing is even if I'm not singing, it, it lines up with where I should be breathing when I'm singing anyway, because it's it's all kind of connected to the same, you know, process. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny how that how that works. I always appreciate the vocalists that sound like instrumentalists too, the the other way around. Right. Yeah. Well, that's you know, I remember that. going to Temple and, and one of the singers asked me for lessons to study with me. I, I just said, just listen to records and copy. Just sing to the records. I mean, that's basically what we're all trying to do is like copy the masters by learning the solos or imitating them you know there's no i don't I, I don't know what i could show you just all you have to do is find the records you like and learn learn, learn you know learn to sing along with them i mean that's even i remember playing at chris's one night with um guys from new york and we were at the bar and um around midnight came on miles davis record mm -hmm. and we're all kind of singing along to the solos at different points it's like we all know this record we all that's why we're on this yeah. gig because we spent some, you know, we had a commonality in that we, we all digested this. this That's one of the most beautiful records he, he came up with. I thought it was round about midnight. Yeah. In the tune round midnight. Right, right, right. Yeah. Such yeah, and that's been the, that's been the jazz, you know, tradition is people, people taking records and and learning to sing them and and learning to play along with them and then. You know, there's a lot of imitation at first, and then it starts turning into, like you said, I think, you, what did you use the analogy of a soup? You become like a soup of your influences. Right. And I, I like the way, uh, 
I like the way that you put that because I think that's how you start developing your own style. It's not like you're, it's not like you're necessarily um, trying to purposely do something that's like never been done before. It's just you have all these influences and they start crashing together, and and when you use them all at the same time, you're going to sound like no one else sounds just because you're you're using you know all these different ideas. And you like it's, it's not necessary. And yeah, you gravitate yeah. toward these ideas more than maybe somebody else is going to gravitate toward those. So you get your your own take on things. Mm-hmm. I also think improvisation is like having a conversation like now where, where we know are the words we've said many times, phrases, but we're saying them in the moment of reacting to each other in a conversation, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's funny too, the, the different areas you can, you know, grab licks from too. Like there's this, this is Bach lick that I, that I took from one of his inventions where he's like, He's in D minor. He's playing over like an A7 chord and it goes C sharp to up to B flat. And he does this a ton. And I love that, that, that sound. Right, right. Uh, you know, it goes C sharp to B flat and then down the scale from there. And um, I started noticing like Bach always does that, that leap over five chords and stuff. It, it's all over the place, but it works so well over jazz tunes too. Cause it's right. really similar harmonic vocabulary. I always feel but like bebop it's it, funny. You can, bebop's almost yeah. related to Baroque in a way. The, you know the voice leadings it it really is and i and i it's one of my favorite things to talk about and i think this is why um i i meet a lot of younger jazz students who haven't studied bebop and they don't they can't phrase whether rhythmically or or harmonically but bebop's so amazing once you learn to once you learn to hear it and play it just because you almost get blown away like the chord changes are outlined like with this this sculpted like precision and the rhythm just flows perfectly over everything. And it's almost easy to like listen to Charlie Parker and be like, Oh yeah, this stuff kind of sounds obvious. But when you look at what he's doing, like everything was just so correctly placed and it, and it sounds natural. It sounds good. And I feel like um, for me, that's such a important thing for jazz musicians to learn how to do. Cause there's nothing wrong with playing in a more like uh, floaty way over changes, whether it's, you know, being more, vague about the the chords you're implying but yeah if you don't have that ability to to outline changes in a way that doesn't just sound like you're running up and down you know arpeggios right. uh, you're missing something and then voice leading you you know you've, you said that a bunch of times on this podcast but that's that's such an important skill to, to even have. when you th- uh, talk about that i was thinking about wayne shorter passing away and um <clears throat> thinking about the miles davis group in the in the 60s there was a the way they were writing tunes, because they were in, in, influenced by Ornette Coleman, who had kind of like broken apart. They Maybe they'd be playing the form of a tune, but they would kind of just play all, over the form of, and, and not necessarily play the changes or try to play melody. And I know that Miles had that period. His group, it's like there's a record live with a plug nickel, where it sounds like when they're playing tunes, they're, they're following the form, but they're just letting their ears go and just kind of following their ears and playing more that floaty sometimes. But they have, they have the foundation from before, so exactly. So they're it sounds great because they're just kind of following their their. Oh, you can just tell you can hear their you know Herbie's ear when he's soloing or Wayne, just kind of doing these so kind of Max vague Roach shapes. Too, right? What's up? Max Roach was on that one. No, that was a that was a Tony Williams, Ron Tony? Carter, and Herbie. Yeah. Shit. yeah, so that was a like nickel one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and that was like. Wayne, to me, as an improviser, was like a painter. He just kind of paints. I can't describe it. He'll just go, oh, here here I am. Here's my stroke. Like a different way of playing. 
and you just hear it develop through his his lifetime, like the plug nickel playing a certain way, or you hear him on this, you know, Asia solo. That's Wayne on Steely Dan. Mm -hmm. yep. He's just playing like uh, I think I'm off center a little bit, but I like that vague playing too. I like that not oh for sure not trying to nail everything, but I like the idea of being able to nail it so you cannot nail it. <laughs> Especially when you, I mean, when you're chasing the bebop dragon, you know, until you can do it, it's it's quite mysterious how people do it. And then once you once you get it under your fingers, um, like anything, it starts getting stale if you don't have variety. And then going into that other kind of playing that's more abstract or or more about like a melodic shape or 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 about the form of a tune. Like Eric and I talk a lot about like playing blues forms with like totally different changes you know, putting odd changes, but keeping the form. And and that, that kind of playing can be so refreshing after you've, you know, really tried to build some bebop vocabulary just because it sounds totally different. And it, it's, uh, I think that's why a lot of people, they go through that, that phase of like, you know, playing over standard bebop tunes and getting that. And then it gets into the pentatonic stuff and then it gets in, because it's just, it opens your ears up to the, to different sounds. Yeah. And, and uh, what you said, like that, and the other important thing in, in jazz, we were talking jazz or music in general time so i remember doing a master class with an alto player and he um he was he played a blues and he said now i want to demonstrate how i'm not going to care about the chords but i'm going to play with good time and good feel and it's still going to sound good so he just played irrelevant to the chord but because his time and phrasing was still cool it sounded great so i always think time's another important factor along with yep. you know the right note choices. You got to have a good feel, whatever genre you want to play in, you know? Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I like that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Eric. I was going to, uh, change a little bit and, and ask you to talk about the way you do, uh, composition. Cause I know you compose, um, and how that differs or what, what's that process for you? Well, lately, um, trying to do more electronic stuff so i have hardware so i kind of go with the whim of what the hardware does but i i got to get back into doll stuff because i want to get more um get back into a, a more complicated composition and process I, I have a lot of like sequences and loops that i've made in recent in recent times so that's more just like oh find a sound let me hear what i'm hearing what what kind of drum what kind of texture can I add something else to this? Can it move to another section? Um, but, but the hardware is kind of limiting, so I want to get back into getting a getting to the using a doll and, and building composition. But in when I was doing more jazz tunes, I'm actually staying away from doing song form because I'm not as interested in it at the moment. But it, when I was doing jazz tunes, basically they were in a song form, not always 32 bar, but kind of in that traditional way of doing it. And uh, especially, and so my, the way I worked when I was on the crisscross uh, label was really quickly, I, he invited me to a session. So I heard a session. It was like, um, and the musicians sounded great. But at the very end of the session, they played a blues. And I just heard how everybody was relaxed and just how they just played, you know, everything just felt like it just freed to another level. So in my head, I was like, okay, simple write simply because we only have you know it's not like i was doing records with groups i played with i did a couple like that but generally one rehearsal record date so i would write simple tunes uh 
that we can rehearse and then get to the music right away. And usually, my last several records, I just had a tape recorder in the car or wherever with me, and anytime I heard a melody, I just would sing into the tape recorder and then figure out chord changes to the melody, maybe develop it later on. But I, I'd get inspiration in my head and then sing, save it, and then at home I'd go through and figure out what was going on and try to make a tune out of it. Yeah, got it. So singing, once again, that's what I did for those, yep. not every tune, but I'd say the majority of them. Yep. Started with singing. Yeah. I, you know, Eric and I have been talking a lot about this recently together, but this, um, the idea of when you're learning something or producing something, like doing things that are kind of within your control and in your bones, you know, like like obviously there's nothing wrong with trying to compose tunes and stretch your own like harmonic vocabulary or whatever. But like, I do think a lot of the times musicians uh, and especially teachers forget that like, you know, the point of a lot of this is to have fun and make some music and sometimes playing tunes that like are within your control already. And, you know, doing a session or two and then just getting it down, whether it's on a recording software or, or a piece of staff paper, um, that's totally fine to do. Not everything has to be, you know, trying to stretch and push and, and requiring like a year of practice before you can even play over the changes of your own tune. Like sometimes it's fine just to like, let's compose more tunes and like do simple ideas and see where this takes us. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I see a lot of teachers do that. You know, they, they're almost like every song has to be more difficult than the last one instead of like, you know, once in a while it's like, let's just have a tune we can actually play. <laughs> yeah. And even that's diff it's, uh, it, it's difficult to make anything sound good. In a way, yeah. I mean, to really musically yeah. play something, it's that. Uh, so why well, make it? Yeah. So I guess my uh, I like complicated stuff too, obviously, and but but <laughs> but, a, but a lot of a lot of times I'll hear music and and it's it sounds sometimes will be complicated, but it sounds musical in, inside all the complication. It still, yep. it has the simplicity to, to to connect, but sometimes it sounds like. I'll listen to some things. I'll be like, well, why? I would never want to listen to this again because it doesn't seem like it has a... Maybe I'm not getting it. I'll try to listen to it again. But sometimes I feel like it's complicated for complica complication. <laughs> to be complicated. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's it, yeah, and I, it's lacking I, in I elements that are like, to connect to. Like a, a through... Because there's super complicated deep music that connects right away and then there's music that's complicated that's just like missing the point you, you know for me like um a composer that really like walks the walk with that is stravinsky when i listen to stravinsky i can like obviously you're like holy shit this is complicated but i i usually with his pieces feel like some pull or like i feel like uh, when i listen to him like i'm picturing images or something but when i listen to a lot of other you know composers around the same time or even in the last hundred years, sometimes I just feel like it, there's nothing to that. I'm, I'm not connecting with something melodically or rhythmically or there a picture isn't being painted in my right. mind. And I, I kind of feel like it's more um, like an exercise, like the composers doing some kind of uh, mental exercise rather than making music that I can actually get into. I, I went to the symphony a year ago and there was a debut of this performer and it wasn't a bad symphony by any means, but it's not something I would, you know, put on again. Like right. I wouldn't put an album, like like put that recording on and listening to it just because uh, uh, there was nothing to connect to. And I think you were, you know, you were bringing up the point that 
sometimes you just don't get it and you need someone to point out to you like why it's interesting or what to look for. But uh, yeah, I, I do feel like a lot of the time it can just be um, sometimes solos too. You hear this on jazz solos. It's like a great tune, a great head. And then the solo just makes no sense. It's just like rambling all of a sudden and it doesn't fit in the context of the song. Yeah. Uh, even though it might be a good player, like technically or whatever, it just doesn't fit with the overall there's no prosody there's no like unity and in, in how the, the soul is not bringing the song right. somewhere interesting right. you're almost dying to get back to the head to have something to grab onto. right right well i think uh, a couple things on that uh, well stravinsky always had a character you hear the character in his music it's like he's the yeah. i don't want to i'm not saying they're the same but picasso had a character you know like you see his stuff there's a that's picasso you see stravinsky you hear that it's like he's just but um, even um, I, I remember even like pre, you know, twelve tone Schoenberg. I forget what it was, uh, uh, Verlich Nacht or something. What is it? I don't know what it's called, but it, that was pretty complicated. But that was I, I enjoyed listening to it because he was stretching, going for that thing. But I think he was still using his ears, and I think he always used his ears, probably. But yeah, sure, his early stuff, and then after a while, I just had to. Bag, bag out. I mean, I haven't yeah. checked out his later stuff. I'm not a, I'm not a connoisseur. But what was I going to say? I always think of music like when I'm trying to play music, I try to picture. You know, when you're young and you hear music, and it's just it's like this amazing thing you're hearing. Like when I was a kid, listening to Stevie Wonder records, like amazed by like what. So, and not thinking about it. It's like I don't go to. I know I'll go, sometimes I'll hear a concert with certain musicians and I'll be like, oh, D7, sharp nine. It's like, I'm not even trying to think like that. I'm trying to listen to music like I listened as a kid. I'm trying to, and so I look at, think of playing music as trying to get back to that, that simple thing. You you work up all the skills in your practice. I think, I'm always thinking of crazy things to practice, but the goal is stop thinking and then play from that point, that, that wonder, that mystery that's that's there that you can't put your finger yeah. on. Why did I play that? It doesn't even make sense with the chord, but it sounds good. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, does that make sense? I don't know if that. No, that, that totally makes sense. I've, I've mentioned this to Eric before, but I, I, I obsessively watched this Joe pass video when I was younger. Like the whole thing was like an hour that it's been like burned into my mind of him, him explaining how he's playing over changes. And sometimes it's so simple. He's like, well, why did I do that? And he's like, well, on the chord before I went da, 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 da. So I just figured I could go da 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 on this next chord, but that next chord happened to be, you know, some ridiculous augmented thing or whatever. But a lot of it was just like the melodic shape or the rhythm. It wasn't, and then he kind of contorted the notes so it fit over the chord change. But uh, and and Dizzy has that great quote, like you know, stop thinking of what um, what like notes to play over chords. Just like choose a rhythm, like sing a rhythm and just put notes over that rhythm. That's funny. You said that. You said that because I have a story. My trumpet teacher, Eric, you remember uh, Mike Natale? Yeah, I took lessons with him too. Yeah, Mike, Mike's still around, but he, um, he told me this story. He was going to his girlfriend's high school graduation and Dizzy was in the audience because he must have had a relative graduating or something. So he he went and sat next uh to Dizzy. He's like, hi, Mr. Gillespie, he sits next to him and then... uh, uh, halfway through, Dizzy goes, where can you get a milkshake around here? So he goes, I know where. So Mike takes Dizzy to the to get a milkshake. And, you know, Mike said he's like 17 years old or 18 years old. And he doesn't know what to ask Dizzy Gillespie. He goes, but when you 
when you improvise, what are you thinking about? And he goes, well, you know, stupid question. I'm just a kid. And, and Tizzy goes, I think of the rhythm and I fill in the notes. Exactly kind of what you're saying. Yeah, I think I think it might. I heard that story from Hal Gelper, but it might have been it might have been the same story. OK, uh, you heard that same story, yeah. that one? Exactly. I, I heard that not, story from Hal from Hal Gelper. But not necessarily Dizzy, was it? It was yeah, no, it was, it was no, it was dizzy. It was, it was dizzy. dizzy. Okay. Does he say yeah. that to Hal? Uh, I, I think so. Hal heard that story from somebody. I don't know if if Hal heard if if was if Hal was talking to Dizzy, but I mean we could check. It's online somewhere. But that I mean that's often my first piece of advice when I get a you know a high school jazz guitar student who's who's not really the, the solos aren't melodic and it, it's not because they're so advanced they're trying to you know break new ground. It's just they 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 just can't make solos that sound natural like they're speaking and i often will just say like you have to think of the rhythm like first like let's just take a three notes of the you know the major scale and just just play some melodies that like you know restrict the notes but just you have no restriction on the rhythm and, right. and scat the rhythm before you play it or do something like that and yeah i mean it's so easy with jazz specifically because there's a lot of harmonic information you have to get a handle on and you can kind of you know your brain can kind of start getting too focused on that and forget about coming up with interesting rhythms at the same time right. and uh, that um, that's often what i see happen to students as they go through some kind of cycle like that it's like they they start getting a handle on the harmonic stuff and then the rhythm goes out the window for a while and and that's why i'm such a big fan of learning licks is the licks have rhythms built into them that you can grab hold of and they they push you through the you know the changes or the form of the song right um yeah there's a good um there's one YouTube channel. Uh, it'll come up on my feed. I forget what it's called, but it, you can find it if you look up. There's one of their posts is "Why do I still suck?" and um, <laughs> and basically what they do in in, in the thing is they have um, he says you know they bring up because you're not playing rhythm in your solo and they 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 have an exercise where they're doing rhythming that monk tune and then you kind of go through it and then they say now try to do your solo but play some of these rhythms play pieces of the rhythm from this melody um yep so which yeah rhythm is is super important and think certain things go out the window at different times you know like even if i'm, yeah. if I'm teaching even really good players i've and from my experience of I don't even know they're good yet because I'll be showing them a concept and they can't really play it. And then we get to yep. we get to playing some music and they start playing. I'm like, oh, he sounds great. I'm like judging him based on the fact that I just gave him something he never played before. Like I have to remind myself, he plays musical. Yeah, everything's sure. musical. Everything's coming out great. I just gave him something that you know put a hitch in his whole thing. It's not that he's not. You know, I judge. I make a judgment that's not correct. Because they're... oh yeah yeah for sure yeah I mean I remember being in a guitar lesson with a jazz uh, well this great guitarist in Vancouver here and he was showing me how to play these like they're like these pentatonics that can imply Dorian they're like they're these interesting pentatonics with like a flat five that you can you know you can put over in a certain part of the chord to imply Dorian and he was showing me these kind of scalier things and it, it just it didn't sing yet to me but it took me a couple weeks to start making my own licks and then you can pre-hear the licks that you're playing and you know, once you can pre-hear them a little bit, you can embellish them and, and contort them and stuff right, like that. Right, right, right. But, yeah, the rhythm, I think, is often... I mean, we often talk about, um, like, transcribing solos or, or learning solos, but I think even for, for people that are get, trying to get the bebop phrasing down, um, not even learning the notes of, like, a Parker head 
just learning to scat a bunch of bebop tunes is so useful because they Absolutely. often people don't they just don't have the phrasing down uh at a basic level yeah and that's another thing with teaching i think um like uh, i'll teach at westchester and sometimes i'll get a student to, that wants to learn jazz and it's like no listening they've never done any listening and it's like <laughs> i mean you can't teach classical or jazz or any music you got to listen to you got to be listening to get start to get some of that stuff in your head. So immediately I'm just saying, okay, listen to this stuff. I mean, yep. if you don't like it, then find the music you like. I mean, that that's the most important thing. Find what you like so you can get into it. But um, yeah, because I've gotten, I, I know when I was younger playing, I would be sitting in and I, I remember playing something and I was like, wait, I, I never even practiced it, but it was like a Coltrane lick. It wasn't a complicated Coltrane lick, but it was a basic sure. thing that I heard him play. And it came out because I had just been listening to the, the records, you know? Yeah. So scatting to yep. it, listening to it, it's just so important to get that in your brain so you're already on the jump with what, what's going on. Yeah, yeah. And especially when you're talking about improv, because, you know, it's, it's one thing... Um, it's one thing if you're going to learn a classical tune and that your teacher plays, you know, four bars of it and then you read the music and try to copy the sound right in front of you. Yeah. But when you're trying to improv, you need vocabulary, you need ideas. These, you know, there's no, they're not going to come from, from nowhere. And, um, I mean, I've heard, it's just so many times you hear stories of jazz musicians like, oh, I just listened to this record, sang along with it, copied it on my instrument. And they do that for a few years. I mean, that's, as Charlie Christian to West Montgomery to, you know, George Benson, like that's the tradition. It's just these guys listening to each other and pushing the, right. you know, the envelope over and over again. And, and, uh, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a bit biased in terms of learning licks, just cause I think if you, if you study like jazz history, I mean, that's what almost all of them have done. Once in a while you get guys like, um, you know, Barry Harris who are like, don't learn licks, learn the theory first and stuff like that. And I, I have no, I, I've, I don't have any doubt that Barry yeah, Harris that, that Barry is a great player. But, he might say that, but, but Barry, Barry... He's doing that. Exactly. Honestly, right. If you look at his clinic, he's singing licks for rhythm changes for the kids. To, he'll sing the phrase, exactly. they learn it, and he sings on. He's showing them licks. So, I mean, I don't know. I never thought... He, does he actually say, don't learn licks, just on the... Yeah, I've heard him, I've heard him say, and, and one of his... He is a great student. I'm forgetting the guy's name, but... Um, I think the guy's name is Sean, but I forget his last name. He's he's he was a student of Harris's for like fifteen years, and he runs a he runs a website called called Jazz Skills, and I've a great content, great player. But he's much more in this mindset like learn the theory, learn the learn the scales, don't play licks. But then how are they playing the skills? How are they playing the scales? Da 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 They're playing it in rhythm, and and then they teach you to embellish these things. So I'm a big fan of theory and and learning all that. I I mean Eric and I. Um, we have a different way of talking about that with the Edwin Gordon crowd, but you know we're we're talking how jazz musicians think right now. But I think theory is great to learn. But I've always found that if you if you pin the theory to vocabulary that you can sing and that you know, the theory always goes much further. Right. Um, when it's and, done that and, way. and maybe done... you can argue that uh, every there are people learn there are people who learn a little differently, so you have to shift a little bit for different people. So some maybe for, sure. for some reason connect to the theory first and. So there's always like a pliable, there's no set little formula that works. It's just got to bend, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and no one's saying like, like definitely like when people push boundaries, I mean, often like jazz musicians will compose tunes that like they theoretically invent first and learn to hear it later. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that's how Giant Steps was composed. He was mm -hmm. like, okay, what if I, what if I put these two fives 
around these three key centers that are, you know, a major third away. I mean, that it, it seems like that's what he was doing. And, and I, I don't think he was hearing that before he composed the tune. He probably came up with that theoretically and then, and then learned to hear it right. along the way. So that's fine. No one's saying don't do that. Um, but yeah, for, for but, me, but I mean, I he had already was... spent years playing. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> yeah. he was coming out, but even out of the blue, if you're doing that, that's cool. But at the same time, you can't live in a vacuum. So you have to, you can't be a great tennis player without watching all the great tennis players. You can't even Mike Tyson talked about how he watched all the great fighters before, you know, to learn how to be yeah. a great fighter. I mean, it's like, that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it, it lines up more with how language acquisition works. You know, you learn vocabulary, you learn words, and then you learn how to put the words into sentences. Right. And I think um, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not going to be, uh, like you can be a great author using only words that you didn't invent. You don't have to invent brand new words. You you have to learn how to do creative things with them and make a story with them. And right. I, I like that analogy. It, it it seems like if you have a student who's struggling with improv, you can actually give them something to do rather than just say, mess around. You can say, well, learn these licks. And then, you know, once you can sing these, maybe try embellishing one note. And then, you know, it's something that's actually manageable and trainable right. rather than just like, oh yeah, go home and noodle. Because right, um, right. I, I find that, you know, once in a while you get, people are so musical. I mean, they will go home and noodle and they'll do that for five hours a day and it turns out okay. But it, it's kind of discouraging when you get a high school kid and you're trying to give them some way to, to, to train this because it, it can seem like such a big task to do until you kind of break through a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I still do that in, in my practice. I'll have little phrase. I have another etude I'm going to put out that I wrote that I got to first learn how to play. And then, um, then I have another concept for another etude I want to do based on conceptual things that I want to do in my practice so I can keep hopefully growing you know playing is the most important thing it's good at this point but um because it's like you're an athlete you got to play and get the timing but I like tinkering I'm like a little engineer my dad was an engineer so I like finding little concepts to work on you know yeah so I'll show the students the concepts I'm working on like one I have now is like a basic concept just triadic concepts should I talk about this or no Oh, 100%. So, so like, let's say we're saying, uh, for me, G7, right? One, one con Let's say a G7. One concept that sounds good over a G7, my G7 F concert, is just think of the triad and approach each triadic note from the diatonic note above and then play the triad. So, if, in other words, if I play the fourth, I'm going to play thir three root five after that. And then I'm going to go to the second. I'll play it. So you hear it first. So I'm just playing four, three, one, five, two, one, five, three, six, five, three, one. So I'm just outlining the triad. I can go up the same way. But I can go up like this too. I love that one. But I'm just, cool. I'm still playing the triad. I'm just going up that time. So now I can, on a seventh chord, I learned that um, being uh, in soloing, if I'm on a G7, my G7, uh, I can talk concert too. I can play my D minor licks sound good on G7 because cause kind of the five is connected to the two in, in traditional jazz. So I can, so I can do the D minor Dorian shape over G7, which is, same concept, 
six to five, uh, four to three, two to one. So I can go on D minor. And then go back up. I can go back up the way. And then I can put them both together on the G7. So now I'm going to do the major and the minor. Oh, no. And I can go back up. Minor. The next one's going to be... Um, uh, major, same from the same note because the six of the D minor is the, is the, um, no, no, e. the two of the D minor is the six of the G. So, oh, yeah, yeah. E to D and then E to D again for the G triad. Now D minor, then second the root for G. know and so on so it's a concept so this is a great example of the other way of doing it where you know it's it's theory first or some kind of some kind of idea but i mean after a while i've no doubt you just start hearing that as a lick that's now in your repertoire like even though you probably constructed it at first very um you know it has a theoretical construction like there's a triad i'm gonna approach it by like a diatonic note and but but eventually you just start hearing that as a lick that's in your yeah yeah so i don't i don't really have it down i played you in the key i can play (laughs) Because yeah, it's a yeah. concept I've been thinking about that I can play pieces of it in any key, like if I'm soloing, but I can't do the concept of the whole seventh chord using the minor and the major down, up and down. So yes, because I also like, if you listen to the early jazzers, they're doing, you know, they're going like... They're doing like triads and, and it sounds so cool. And I realized at one point in my playing, I was like, God, I can't even play a triad well. I'm so used to playing bebop lines. <laughs> So then I, I just started working on that thing. And then, I, you know, that was years ago. But now I, I kind of like the idea of having really simple concepts to do. So I can do that concept. Then I'm going to shut up with this. Like with tritone substitutions. Oh, no, it's great. You know, tritone subs, yeah. you know. So if I'm doing yeah. Oh, yeah. a yeah. G7 but, and I want to go to an, a C major, but I want to make a little formula to practice i mean i can do i've done tried i do them all the time but in this case maybe i go like now i'm going to go uh, a g7 or, or a c sharp or b concert b7 now i'm going to play the same concept there so it's like You know, that I resolved to B-flat concert, B-flat seven. But I'm I'm forcing this concept so I can, it's a formula in my practice. This this concept only to, you know, in a G7, D-flat seven, C7. It's crazy how much mileage you can get out of something like that. Because even, you know, you can can take this concept and then, and then, you, you start putting it over different changes. You start using it as an extension over something else. And right, like, right. Um, you can relate something you've mastered to something new. And it, it seems to, uh, you just get such a big cash value out of stuff. You can keep re, 
like recycling stuff and making more interesting ways of, of using it. Yeah. What's kind of cool. I mean, about music, as you see with, you know, players like Chick Corea and Wayne and Herbie, it's like, it's a never ending like fountain of like fun, like just an explanation. If you love music, it's like, Oh, this is cool. You know, it's always interesting. It's always kind of inspiring. Yeah. And that seems to work very well for composing and for improvising, like thinking in melodic shapes, and having some kind of you could have a formula for that or, or even a more looser melodic shape where you're you know maybe you're going three notes that one has to be close to each other and then the other one has to be a leap and just run that over changes and see what happens right right um, it's just a lot of fun to do stuff like that so john in my early childhood programs after bo and i started talking and he's much heavier jazzer than i am although i listen to the shit a lot and i just love it you know you go back to louis and you, you get up you know clifford brown it's just like Go through, go through the whole litany of, of the great trumpet players. It's like, I, I love them all. And, and uh, But anyway, it's like, what do children need? It's like, well, why can't I just play London Bridge, which is the best melody for this, is instead of, you know, my fair lady, you do you do two, you know, tritone substitution one. <laughs> and I just let them listen to it. It's like, so I do it in major, I do it in minor. We can do it jazzy. And if you want a jazzy, I, I put this in. It's like, it's just, just giving them vocabulary to listen to it, right? Right. And then they can ask for it. Do you want the jazzy way? Or you want, you uh, right, know, right, which right. way do you want it? And the kids, like. That's been something Eric and I have been talking about over the past few years, is like taking those simple, you know, nursery rhyme songs and putting tritone subs in there. And, you know, he has young students that can, that can tell if there's a tritone sub in these songs, which is unreal. Like, can you imagine being four years old and, and knowing like how to recognize a tritone sub in a song? Like, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I know it's ridiculous, but they, but it's amazing that they can do it. Like you just, you show them the normal version long enough and then you put the change it's, in and the change is just like, Whoa. Right. And, it's just and, different. And I yeah, do a two amazing. five one and then the two, you know, flat two one, if you want to call it, but the, the Neapolitan, the right. Thing. The Neapolitan is the other yeah. thing. Yeah. 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 Same, same thing. So, but they, yeah, they just they just know it because it's different than this one and this one and this one. Right, right. That's all. That's a, it's really... that's how I discovered Neapolitan chords. I remember I was having a classical lesson and I, uh, you know, I hear it as just like a like a flat six, like a dominant off the flat six. And my teacher was like, "No, no, it's a Neapolitan chord." And, and for me, I'm like, "It just sounds like a dominant off the flat six. <laughs> 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 and he's like, "That's not how we write it here." And I'm like, "Well, okay, that's fine." <laughs> but. Uh, uh, very, very cool. Uh, actually, your, your, the idea you, you were talking about with the, uh, with the triads having a diatonic thing. I, I've, I've been also working on your, um, your etudes over the bird blues. Oh yeah, and that, and that the, the first one is like that. There's these. Yeah, there's, there's some parts of semitone. Yeah, I went yeah, back to semitones the... going into triads or, or outlining the changes. Yeah, exactly. I went, to, I went, I went by, back to them because I was like, I should keep keep them up because they're kind of a challenge technically you know so i remember going through it and go oh i'm doing that i i'm, I'm a little more developed in where i want to go with it but in that i'm doing that 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 triad with like you said approaching chromatically to it's also really good for your ear like i uh, i can play them on the guitar but i'm spending most of my time just learning to sing it first right. and, and learning to sing triads by approaching them from half steps it really sorts your ears out like you can hear the the changes quite well if you can do that right right <laughs> And, yeah, and it's it, a lot of fun though. and it's so simple i mean it uh, i just like the simplicity of um breaking things down obviously there's lines and i just like the simplicity of uh having a formula that's 
not too yeah. complicated. You know, one thing we haven't talked about a lot yet, but uh, I want to be mindful of people's time as well. But, um, you know, actually mastering concepts, like taking a small concept like that, like just take triads and approach them by half step or, or even just approach like the first note by half step and really learn how to do that, you know, with to a high level of fluency and take uh, like for me, I'd rather have a small amount of things that I have down cold that I can play over all kinds of songs rather than just have a bunch of disconnected ideas that are not like fully in my vocabulary or fully like up to fluency. And I think um, there, there's other teachers that talk about this outside of music. Like, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like, there's this whole thing called precision teaching, but the goal is it's, it's not enough just to be able to do something. You have to have it master the point where it's like, it's fluent and it just flies out of you. And that that's what actually, you know, that's what you're going for when you're learning something is really having something down like that. Yeah, I think, uh, and I think, I think you're such a great example of that. I think my, T problem with teaching is I'll, I kind of start vomiting too much information to students. Mm. Like I, I like that concept, but like even when you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, just stick to one concept and we'll play through that the whole lesson because they're not going to have it down either way. Instead of a lot of times, I I'll have somebody for one lesson, so I'll just give them a bunch of stuff that they can work on the future. But it's almost better to do a single concept, like you said. It's like um, uh, there was a jazz saxophone player I played with. Uh, um, Grant Stewart, and he would always, he was in the reading Seneca. And oh, yeah. So he's reading Seneca. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Seneca was talking. That's about, what Seneca says, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Like, oh, all these people have all these books, but you don't, all you need is one book, one book, and learn that book thoroughly. And what, you know, Grant was like, you learn one record. Why don't you learn, like, yep. Sonny Rollins? I don't know. You guys might have heard of that math prodigy. I think his name was Ramanujan, but he was, I think he was. He grew up in like India or something like that, but he's from a very poor family and he had access to like one math textbook. And he just, because he didn't have a lot of financial resources, like he learned this thing inside and out. He ended up, you know, contributing to, you know, mathematic, mathematics in like pretty impactful ways. And um, a lot of people think that it was because he took, you know, one kind of resource and just put it through the ringer and really understood, you know, that resource rather than, and I think, uh, I'm I'm not religious myself. I, I meditate and I read a lot of Buddhist texts, but you know, these idea of these religious systems having one book that they kind of master and they they go back to whether it's like the Bible or something, um, it's often better for people than than just you know reading widely and never coming back to it. And and yeah, Seneca talks about you know that you know take a few books and 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 know them. Right. Um, you know, I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, it may, uh, yeah, and like you said, the ma mastery of that concept because. Uh, you can end up being a jack of all trades and not quite, you know, but I mean, yep. that's why, I mean, you see somebody like Lee Konitz's Korean jazz. I mean, he played the same tunes his whole life. Yep. Pretty much, you know, so he would just maybe change the key, but he just mastered playing, you know, all the things you are for 50 years or 60 years, you know, more than that. I mean, yeah, he had sure. a lot going on, but definitely they had, they had their, uh, uh, tunes that they all played together all through the years yeah yeah, yeah for sure well, that, was, that was a fun conversation i'm sure we could it sounds like we could go on forever <laughs> this is usually what happens with once you get a cup of coffee in me and talk to something <laughs> interesting i'm i'm ready to go <laughs> yeah right right <laughs> yeah yeah john it's really good to see you man yeah you too eric where are you living i'm in towson just out of baltimore oh nice i thought you were down there okay uh, yeah, Peabody doing early childhood music. Oh, who's it? Who's and, uh, teaching? 
Was Sean Jones a Peabody? Yep. Yeah. Or he was. Who's there now? <clears throat> Sean Jones. Yeah. Did Sean leave? They just trans. No, I, I think he just came in just a few years. Yeah. Because uh, somebody else was there and, and left. I think Ingo Jensen was there maybe for a second. I don't know. Oh, Gary Thomas was head of the jazz department at one point. Yeah. 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 yeah Benny Golson came in a couple of years ago. That was fun. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I saw Lee Konitz up in the Poconos at one point. Uh, this is the 80s. And his, there's like nobody there. It was like six people. Wow. Just, oh, it was so awesome. But I remember Kenny Wheeler coming to Chris's Jazz Cafe in Philly, and I didn't hear about it. And, and a, a uh, friend of mine went, and he said there was nobody there. Yeah. I said, Kenny Wheeler, come on, man. I love Kenny Wheeler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, his stuff with, with Jan Garbrecht and, and uh, his guitar player, I just turned you on to uh, Ralph Towney. Oh, yeah. That oh, yeah. stuff, ECM label. Even uh, the, the last record, supposedly, that Keith Jarrett did as a sideman is Kenny Riller's record, New High. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. A lot of good stuff out there. Yeah. Too much. Including yours. <laughs> yeah. The, you played with some heavies along the way. Yeah, I've been lucky. Drop a name or two for people in the audience. Uh, well, I was on a Benny Golson record. Um, what else? I mean, uh, wow, now I can't think of anybody. I mean, through the years I played with, <laughs> I pretty much played with, you know, Peter Bernstein. Uh, oh, really? I've been listening to Peter Bernstein, actually. Yeah, he would come um, down to Chris's, and I, I'm on a, a couple record dates. I think Ralph Bowen record dates with Peter. And I was like Peter. Yeah, I think I was. Go ahead. Yeah, but I was like Peter because he's very clear and concise with the way he plays melodies you know everything he plays he's a beautiful player he's he's in control he knows exactly he just has a control over everything he's doing kind of uh, um i mean eric alexander uh i mean we, we used to back up people like freddie hubbard so i was on a recording date with freddie hubbard i always tell this story where at rudy van gelder's and um Nothing of the date ever came out. It's like Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson. I got to play with Joe Henderson on it. Grover Washington. Oh, wow. And um, I was playing before Freddie, and the mic was like, I don't know, three, maybe three feet for me. And then Freddie starts playing, and Rudy comes running out and pulls the mic back another like two feet because Freddie was just like, <laughs> powerhouse. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, with the big band, we backed up, you know, Joe Sudler, back when we were, you were around, Eric, we backed up Freddie Hubbard, the Lockjaw Davis, Bob Minzer, um, Slide Hampton, uh, Ronnie Cooper, who just passed away, a bunch of people. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, I, yes. Yeah, so, uh, Bootsy. I remember, I remember seeing you with Bootsy at some point. Bootsy all the time. Yeah. Larry McKenna in Philly. Bootsy Barnes and Larry, yeah. Yeah, Bootsy passed away during COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and through the years, different people coming down. Chris Potter, played with Chris Potter. Cause, uh, oh, wow. Eric Alexander and uh, who else? There's a great guitar player on, on one of my records. Uh, John Patitucci. So mm -hmm. I have a record with Patitucci and um, 
Jesse Von Roller, guitar player from Europe, great player, and um, Eric Harland, drummer. That's great. Well, it's good talking to you, man. Yeah, you too.